Uh, we are in a doctrinal series. We're going to be in Acts chapter 8 today. I'd, go ahead, I'd encourage you to go ahead and flip your Bible there. There's going to be a point where I'm actually going to have you look at the verses specifically. So to have your Bible ready uh, would be a good thing. Uh, but we're in a doctrinal series. And to this point, we've been dealing with essentials of the faith. The essentials in the sense that, first and foremost, that they are essential to our salvation. Second, where we have touched on things that aren't necessarily essential to our salvation, for example, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we still dealt with things that the church, the broad church, not just our local congregation, in which would be generally be agreed upon by Christians everywhere, that we are all gifted by the Holy Spirit in some way. Today, though, that's going to take a, take a shift. We're going to take a, take a step forward, and we're going to deal with some of our secondary doctrines, uh, or, or let me say it a little, a little differently, some of the more distinctive doctrines that we hold uh, that would distinguish us, if you will, from other denominations or Christian perspectives. Doesn't divide us out from the body, doesn't divide others from us in that sense that it, it just is distinctive views uh, that we share within Christianity, but distinguish us from one another and, and in, in some way, that's how denominational alignments and affiliations and things have been formed. Today, we're going to deal with two issues, or we're actually going to deal with one of two issues, the ordinances of the church. We're going to be studying the next two weeks, baptism and the Lord's Supper or communion. Uh, and then we'll get into some more of the distinctive doctrines. But, but we're treating the ordinances, and we do treat the ordinances here, just a little bit differently than we do our other distinctive purposes, We've our distinctive views. We've actually included them in our... Uh, statement of faith, and, and baptism is even part of our um, covenant together, that we covenant together that we're baptized believers. Uh, the, the reason for that is, is because they're more than just a view. They are commands that Jesus gave us to carry on as the church, as his people. There is a, a, an actual command that we have been given to, to continue doing these things. And so they are essential in obedience, they become secondary, if you will, in the modes and the practice of them. However, we have a very specific way we teach them, and we would encourage each of our members to at least, even if you hold a different perspective, to walk humbly and graciously with us and not seek to be divisive in this, especially as we gather as a church, that you would at least submit to the teaching and, and, the, and the perspective that this church holds. And today, as I mentioned, we're going to start with baptism. We're going to, instead of jumping immediately to the verse where Jesus commands us to baptize, we're going to look at a story in which a, a Gentile person, that's a person like you and me, was baptized. In Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 26, we find the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. We're going to read the whole thing, and we're going to focus in on the middle part of it, but I want to read the whole thing for context. So if you will, just follow along as I read. And the word says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. 
In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And they were going along the road, and they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And, it, <clears throat> and when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. We'll stop right there. Let's pray before we jump into the sermon. Father, we're grateful for your word, grateful for what it reveals about who you are, what you've done on our behalf, and, and who we are made because of, of what you have done. I'm grateful for the reality that, that you have given us new life and given us a way to picture it. I pray today as we study baptism, Father, that you would teach us by your spirit truth. And that past all the, all the arguments and all the disputes that we would be able to discern, Father, what your word has to say. I pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So here, here we are. I read this whole story for, for, for context, but I, I want to zoom in on this place where Philip finds this Ethiopian reading Isaiah. Specifically, he's reading from Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. Uh, and, and, and he hears him reading, and he's like, hey, what, do, you, do you know what's happening here? And he says, no, how could I know? Somebody's got to explain this to me. So Philip begins to explain it to him, and it tells us, and right around verse 35, it says, then Philip opened his mouth, beginning with this scripture. So not staying in that scripture, but beginning with this scripture. He told him the good news about Jesus. He points to Jesus from Isaiah 53, and he begins to express the gospel to this man. The assumption is, and this is what we're left with, because it doesn't give us specifics. The assumption is that in hearing the gospel, the man believes the gospel, wants to follow in obedience to the gospel. And immediately when he sees water, he's like, hey, here's water. I want to get baptized. Is there anything keeping me from it? Now, I, I want to show you this. I just want you to see it. There's a textual variance here. There's a, a, a dispute, if you will. I want, I, want to, I want you to be aware of it. In verse 36, if you'll just look at this, beginning in verse 36, here's where the eunuch says, as they were going along, he sees water. The, the eunuch says, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Immediately after that, if you're reading in the ESV, the CSB, or the NIV, We skip verse 37, we move immediately to verse 38. And he commanded the chariot to stop. And so the the idea here is that there is nothing stopping him from being baptized. He is just going to, he believes. He wants to get baptized and and he believes. And so nothing's going to stop him from it. And so they they go down in the water and Philip baptizes the eunuch. The thing is, is that somewhere along the way, a, a they believe, nobody really knows who did it, but they believe that there was an, a well-intentioned scribe that added the phrase that's, kept in ver, that, that's put into verse 37. And so King James Version has verse 37. The NASB has verse 37 in brackets with a footnote that says this probably wasn't in the original manuscripts. I want to read it to you so that you can see the flow and then we'll talk about it. So, so I, I've got it on the screen so that you can follow along. And as they were going along the road, came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Brackets. And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. 
And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So we see Philip say that the one thing that's keeping you from being baptized would be a, a credible profession of faith. And the eunuch says, I believe. In verse 38, and he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. The idea presented is that the, 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 the one qualifying factor for baptism is a profession of faith, a true belief in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. Here's the thing. That, that, that's right theology. That's accurate information. That's the truth. You don't, you don't have to... Do a bunch of things to prove yourself. You don't have to work yourself to a place to be worthy to be baptized. The one qualifying factor for baptism is a profession of faith. But the manuscript evidence tells the tale. And that's why a lot of the modern manuscript or the mod- modern translations don't include it because the earliest manuscripts we have demonstrate that that verse, verse 37, wasn't there. Some well intentioned scribe meant good in putting it there to help us see what was being expressed in this passage. I don't think it's, personally, I don't think it's necessary. I think that just the, the story by itself, if you remove verse 37, still demonstrates that this Ethiopian eunuch believed, wanted to, be, wanted to be baptized based on the teaching of the gospel. In fact, I think there's three things, at least three things that we could see from this passage. For the Ethiopian eunuch, Baptism was a response motivated, motivated by faith in Jesus. I don't think we need verse 37 to tell us that. The eunuch was curious about this passage in Isaiah. He wanted to know who is this author, who is this prophet speaking of, and immediately Philip begins to teach him about who? Jesus. And what? The good news about Jesus. The passage that he's reading speaks to the suffering of Jesus Christ. It's inconceivable inconceivable to think that Philip, who's telling him the good news about Jesus, tells him about a death, but doesn't connect it to the resurrection, which is what made Philip who he was. Philip is a product of a believer, who, a, a product of the gospel that is Jesus died and Jesus resurrected. We know that because he's one of the seven leaders chosen back in Acts chapter 6 when the apostles said, hey, we need to focus on word and prayer. We need people to di- take care of the distribution. Find us some leaders who have believed the gospel, who know the story, who have the fruit of the spirit. They had qualifications. He's a mature believer So it's inconceivable to think that he stopped with talking about the suffering and didn't get to the resurrection. It it, it just doesn't add up. So yes, that is an assumption, but I think it's a safe assumption. In addition to that, we, we don't need verse 37 to tell us that the eunuch had expressed faith because in the book of Acts, Luke has already established that faith is the prerequisite for baptism. He did that on Pentecost morning. When when he reports what happens on Pentecost morning, Peter preaches the gospel. And he comes to the point, it's in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, I think. Yeah, verse verse 36, where he comes to the summation of his sermon. And he says, and let all of the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And the response of the people was, I mean, it was intense. Luke says in the very next verse, he says, they were cut to 
the heart. Now, I don't know what it exactly felt like for them. I, I imagine what being cut to the heart feels like when, you know, when it's not just down in your chest, but the, the emotion is so rich that you've been, you feel like you've been kicked in the gut. Like the, all your innards are just turned inside out all of a sudden. You just feel the weight of what has happened. That's what Luke is describing. What causes this emotion, what causes this response is not because they had some theory, but because they had just become, come to believe that they had killed their Messiah. They had killed the Christ. They had killed the one that Jesus had said is both Lord and Christ. What do we do was their response. They're cut to the heart. They immediately ask, what do we do? And Peter calls them to repentance and to baptism. And that, that, that's the, the prescription over and over in the book of Acts. When you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, you walk in repentance and you get baptized. Their newfound faith prompted that. There's no reason to assume that it's different for this eunuch. There's no reason to, to assume that this eunuch was following a different paradigm than had already been established and would carry on through the rest of the book of Acts. His response, his desire for baptism, his seeing water and wanting to be baptized was motivated by his newfound faith that Jesus Christ was the Savior. I, I don't think there's any reason for thir verse 37. I don't think it's necessary. don't think it's wrong, but it's not necessary. The next thing, for the Ethiopian eunuch, baptism was an immediate act of obedience. I, I would suggest that this is actually the whole perspective as we read in the new testament church as we read this was the way baptism was practiced at least as soon as possible right as soon as he saw water they're, they're driving along and, and we don't know how long between the moment he'd begun to believe that this that this suffering savior that he was being told about we don't know how long it was before he saw water but as soon as he saw water see there's water well, what's to keep me from being baptized? What's standing in my way from being able to participate in this? What's, what's keeping me? What's holding me back? Is there any reason I shouldn't also be baptized? His desire was to comply with the teaching of the gospel as soon as possible. He wanted to do whatever was necessary to be counted as one of Jesus' followers. He wanted to do whatever was necessary to receive the blessing and the benefit of being united with Christ. He saw baptism as an important and vital step in following in that. Well, how, how could he know? We, we, we don't need to assume that, that Philip had, had just ignored baptism or that, or that the Ethiopian eunuch had suddenly just begun, gotten smart enough. There, there probably doesn't need to, we don't need to assume that there was some, some uh, supernatural uh, revelation, hey, you need to be baptized. In all likelihood, Philip, who began with Isaiah 53, but didn't stop with Isaiah 53, told him the good news of Jesus. There's no reason to think that Philip didn't also instruct him about this. And hey, let's do it. There's nothing keeping you from it. Again, it seems like this is the normal process or the normal practice in the early church, in the church as it's expressed to us in the book of Acts. We see it on Pentecost morning. We just talked, I just talked to you about that. They, they, what do we do? The cut to the heart. What do we do? Peter says, repent and get baptized. In verse 41, the, the Bible tells us, so those who received his word, those who believed him, 
Those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. The baptism is connected not just with the faith, but with the entry into the body. 3,000 people. In the passages just preceding the one, where, the, the one that we're studying now, where Philip is, is preaching the gospel and those who are listening are believing, it says this in verses 12 and 13. If your Bible's open to it, you can scroll up, just scan up to it and, and follow along. It says, but when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Baptism is closely connected with the profession of faith. Even Paul, who met Jesus on the road to Damascus, is blinded by him, gets, put, uh, gets sent to, to a house on Straight Street. He's waiting there, and Ananias shows up. When Paul reports on his own baptism, Ananias, he tells us in Acts twenty two sixteen that Ananias shows up and says, And now, why do you wait? Well, I've been blind. That's not a good enough excuse. Why do you wait? Rise and be baptized. Wash away your sins. Calling on his name. Just so you know, Paul doesn't use the excuse of being blind. That's just me throwing something in there. The verse says, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized. Wash away your sins. Calling on his name. It seems that the perspective is that baptism is to be closely connected immediately, or at least as soon as possible, following the credible profession of faith. It's not necessarily how we practice it today. It seems the, the more common practice today is to figure out how to delay it or just to not participate in it. I was in a conversation with a pastor not long ago, and he told me their practice at their church was to have a class and then to wait for about six months to, to determine if the person really was a believer. How, is six months really long enough? Why not a year? Why don't we just put it off to the end of life so that we have the whole life to determine whether or not someone has actually provided a credible profession of faith? It, we, we have a lot of freedom. We, we, we have a lot of freedom because the Bible doesn't give us explicit instructions about the practice of baptism. It gives us plenty of insight, but we have a lot of liberty here, but we must also use wisdom. It seems to me that the Bible doesn't it doesn't use, uh, it doesn't delay baptism to try to prove someone's profession of faith. In fact, it seems to me that the Bible instead encourages the church to baptize those who make professions of faith. And then they enter into a discipleship slash discipline process. All of us are under discipleship. All of us should be regularly engaged in church discipline as we love one another enough to both Love covering a multitude of sins, but also loving one another enough to say, hey, you have a sin, you, you've got this pattern of sin in your life that I think you need to be concerned about. There should be this process in which we are being matured as Christians, and when our life goes out of step with the gospel, the church loves us enough to say, you're out of step with the gospel. Repent. And if a person doesn't repent, it moves to the next level till eventually the point comes where the person's profession of faith is said that the church, not just the leaders of the church, but the church, the local congregation says, your profession is probably false. Your baptism doesn't count and you're no longer allowed to take communion with us. We're going to treat you as an unbeliever. We're going to evangelize you 
as if you had never professed faith. That seems to me the process in which the Bible sets out for its people. Profess faith. Do you believe? Yes, I believe. Baptize that person, then seek to develop a process or enter into a process with them that they mature as a Christian and are disciplined as a child of God. And in time, everyone will know. It will be proven. We're going to do the best we can not to baptize unbelievers. It's not, it's not worthwhile. But, but the reality is that how do you know? When do you ever know? The Lord knows. The rest of us are dealing with the external fruit. There are a lot of people who can put on a show for a long time. So, so baptize people. So because like this Ethiopian we, uh, eunuch, we, we want to baptize people as soon as possible. Because like the process practiced in the early church, we're going to seek to baptize people we're going to sit down with you. The leaders of the church, the elders of the church are going to sit down with you. We're going to hear your profession of faith. We want to hear a credible profession of faith. Do you believe? We're going to talk to you about what baptism is. And we're going to encourage you to get baptized as soon as possible. Do you want family there? Do you want people that you know that have been a part of your discipleship process? Absolutely invite them. We'll set up a Sunday, but soon that they can be there, that they can be a part of it so that we as your church family can gather around you. But let's not delay it just for the sake of delaying it. So, so we see from the Ethiopian eunuch, baptism was a response motivated by faith. Baptism was an immediate act of obedience, or at least as soon as possible. And baptism to this Ethiopian eunuch is desirable. It's something he wanted. It's something he was excited about. He didn't squabble about it. He didn't debate it. He didn't look at his religious heritage. I mean, just imagine who this guy is. He's an Ethiopian traveling all the way to Jerusalem to worship God. It's, he's already a religious person. He's reading the scripture. He's already undergone some, some religious expre- conversion. He doesn't depend on that. He doesn't lean into that and say, oh, no, no, no. I don't need to be baptized, you see. Because theologically and doctrinally, I've got it worked out that I'm above that. No, he's excited about it. He's come to know that the Christ is the, that Jesus Christ is the Savior. He's come to know that he's no longer in the kingdom of darkness, but by Jesus Christ, he's in the kingdom of light. His dead heart has been made to beat with life. Why wouldn't he want to get baptized? Why wouldn't anyone in this place want to get baptized except that they've got some personal doctrinal perspective or some personal fear, some other excuse that probably revolves around them keeping them from it? Look, there really is no reason not to get baptized. There's no good reason for someone who has come to faith not to want to get baptized. Except they're leaning into tradition. They're leaning into fear. or Any number of other reasons that I could list. Here, here, let me just say this, and I hope this hasn't come across too direct. I, I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad if you've got reasons for not being baptized. I would encourage you to talk with me about those reasons. If you've not been baptized and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, talk to me. Let's really look at what the scripture says. Let's really talk about what the Bible shows us. Let's really look at the reasoning you have. It's been my experience. I could be wrong. I don't think so, but I could be. (laughs) I'll, I'll move on. Sorry. 
back on track. I could be wrong. It, I, I get it. There have been a number of views. But let's be honest enough. Let's be open enough. Let's be willing enough to look at the Scripture and walk in accordance with them as opposed to tradition or personal perspective or fear or something like that. This Ethiopian eunuch, he was excited for this. I would imagine, and I think that that's depicted across all of the examples of, of, of uh, baptism through the New Testament. I think it's something we should desire. But beyond this story of the Ethiopian eunuch, the, the scripture has a lot to say about what forms our view or how our view is informed about what baptism is. For, for example, mode and method. This is something that's been debated over and over for generations. Should you pour water over people? Should you sprinkle babies? Should you fully immerse someone? Mode and method. Here's our stance. We believe baptism is rightly performed by immersion in water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Two things that, that build this out for us, that help us understand this. First, the Greek word baptizo. We've been referencing it. Every time I say baptize or baptism, it's really just a, a form of the Greek word baptizo. It, 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 the idea is, is that word in the Greek means to immerse something in water or make it completely wet. Now, to be fair, not everyone agrees that immersion is absolutely required by the word baptizo, right? Not everyone agrees. That. And, and, it, and it's really interesting. As I look this up and re- refresh my memory on this uh, over the last couple of weeks, it's really broken down along denominational lines. So the Anglicans and the Presbyterians, the people who baptize infants, they're quick to say... Baptizo doesn't demand, uh, doesn't, doesn't immediately imply or mean that it has to be immersion. People who are baptistic or believe to, hold to believer's baptism say, no, the word baptizo. So, so take it for what it's worth. There's, there's more than just this reason, but we have always held the position and taught the position and encouraged people to believe the position that baptizo in its truest form means immerse, to make something fully wet, to put it under the water. Now, I'm going to deal with it more in just a minute, uh, but, but also the meaning of baptism will have something to do with this. Second, the baptism in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit comes from Jesus' command to his disciples. Go, therefore, Matthew 28, 19, go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This verse indicates the authority on which we baptize. I don't have to feel bad. No other disciple maker has to feel bad when they say, be baptized. Because we have been commanded by Jesus Christ to go make disciples, baptize them. This seems the order follows. When you become a disciple, you you get baptized. When you become a follower of Jesus, when you believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, you get baptized. I don't have to feel bad about that because I'm doing it on the authority of the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But it also indicates for us who it is that the person is submitting themselves to when they get baptized. As we put them under the water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we raise them up with that same authority in that same name, these people who undergo baptism are saying, yes, I submit to them. I belong to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He is my Father. I am a beneficiary of the Son. 
And I give myself to the, to the leading and teaching of the Holy Spirit. That's why we do this. There's meaning behind this. But, 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 but it's, not just, it's, it's not just about how and why we practice it. That same verse gives us our next view. We believe baptism is an act of obedience to Jesus' command. The very same reason that the eunuch was being baptized is the same reason we would continue to baptize people today. Jesus said so. In, in fact, when you read that passage in its context, I have been given all authority, Jesus says, which means everything I say is, is to be obeyed. I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, so go, Make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. So there's this idea that it continues on. We're teaching people to obey what Jesus has commanded. One of those commands is to go. One of those commands is to baptize. And one of those commands is to teach. All of these things are what we're supposed to do as believers. In fact... To not baptize someone, to, to not teach people to be baptized is an act of disobedience. Also known as sin, because Jesus said to do it. To not get baptized is an act of disobedience, also known as sin. It's wrong not to teach people to do it, and it's wrong not to have it done or to participate as one being baptized. So, so, so we've talked about the mode and method. We've talked about it being obedience, but, but the meaning of baptism, what does it represent? What does it mean? We believe baptism is an external symbol of the internal and eternal reality. We believe baptism is an external symbol of the internal and eternal reality. Because it's also an act of obedience, we don't want to just say it's merely a symbol. We don't want to dis- disconnect it from Jesus commanding us to it. The, the apostles didn't just come up with this, and this is just some religious practice we go through. This is a command of Christ. So it's not just merely a symbol, but it is a symbol. There is no saving power in the work. There's no, no, no saving power in the words that we say as we, as we practice baptism. The immersion in and raising up from the water are significant. They do mean something. They do symbolize something. But they don't actually accomplish salvation. They are accompanied, though, by the blessing of obedience. It is a command. And we are blessed by God to obey Him. We we are blessed in obedience. We are blessed with the opportunity to see our faith strengthened as we stand in front of a lot of people and say, I align myself with, I stand forgiven because of Jesus Christ. And we encourage one another as we do that. Every time we get the opportunity to baptize, there's always lots of cheering, lots of clapping. I think it's oftentimes for, for believers, just like a marriage ceremony, when you're sitting there and thinking about your wedding ceremony as you're watching a young couple get married. It's encouraging to the believers that are, are in the room with you. Well, some of the things that baptism symbolizes are this. Baptism symbolizes our union with Christ in his death, burial, and Resurrection. Baptism symbolizes our union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Colossians 2.12 says, In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, 
he is, Paul is connecting you to, he's giving you union with, in this verse, union with the death of Christ. His bleeding, the death of his body. Having been buried with him, see the burial, having been buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. In baptism, we show and we represent the burial, the death and the burial as you go under the water, and we represent the resurrection as you come up out of the water. That's another reason we would suggest that immersion is the right mode for baptism. It symbolizes our union with Christ in his death, in his burial, and his resurrection. It symbolizes, baptism symbolizes the forgiveness of and cleansing from sin that we have received. Baptism symbolizes our forgiveness and our cleansing. Immediately following the verses that I just read from Colossians, Paul writes these words in verses 13 and 14. You were dead. Remember, he's, con- he's already connected to baptism. He's already in the context. He's already making reference to what baptism represents. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespass by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So here we are in context. Union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection accomplishes what? Forgiveness and cleansing of our sin. Baptism signifies that. Baptism symbolizes our union with God's people. There's a lot of passages I could pull this from, but being one of my favorite books of the Bible, Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, seems one of the the, the best. Uh, Maybe not for you, but it is for me. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Our baptism doesn't just signify our union with Christ, our forgiveness of sin. It symbolizes, it signifies our union with one another. When we stand together and we talk to one another and we say, I am a baptized believer, follower of Jesus Christ. There's an an immediate ability to connect. We stand publicly and say, we follow him. We are of him. Baptism signifies the new life we now live in Christ. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Again, union in his death. We were buried, therefore, union in his burial. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in his death, like with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. The point Paul is making is that not only are we connected with this union in death, burial, and resurrection, but there's a connection to the way we live today. In fact, we say it when we baptize people here. We say, baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, raised, buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in the newness of life. Because the moment you come up out of that water, the symbol is, I am a new person. I am a new creation, and I am going to live in a manner worthy. This is what baptism signifies. Not all that baptism signifies, but many of the things that that the Bible teaches us baptism signifies are listed here. Now, I know I've thrown them at you. I know I've just kind of bullet pointed them and, and rushed through them. I would encourage you, if you have questions, talk to me. Let, 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 let's have a discussion. These are vital Points, But you put this all together and it brings us to the place where we can say who it is that we baptize. 
Who will we baptize? Who, who can be baptized? Who should be baptized? We believe everyone who has made a credible profession of faith in Jesus Christ should be baptized. We believe everyone who has made a credible profession of faith in Jesus Christ should be baptized. We see it with the Ethiopian eunuch. He, he, he has to believe. Why else would Philip baptize him? We see it all the way through the book of Acts. People believing the gospel, getting baptized. We see it over and over and over. Jesus saying, make disciples, baptizing them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Closely connected to the response of faith. So we don't baptize infants. We're not going to baptize your, your babies. We, we would suggest that there's no reason in Scripture at all to baptize an infant. The, the only way we can get infant baptism out of the Scripture is take, to take a, 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 a um, theological doctrine that's become as much tradition. In fact, you've got to move into tradition before you can really see baptism expressly applied to infants being born. I know that some of you have Presbyterian friends and some of you may have a Presbyterian perspective. I've got a whole debate between um, James White and, Do- uh, I can't remember his first name, something Strawbridge, Dr. Strawbridge, I'll call him. Whole debate on YouTube, you can look it up. Dr. White makes an excellent point. There, there is no teaching, and every Presbyterian will come to this, there is no express command to baptize our infants. There's no, no reason why we think we should do it, where you can clearly see people baptizing. You have to make inferences. You have to make doctrinal leaps. But tradition is the key. And anyway, you listen to that debate. I, th- I think you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. The reality is, is that biblically speaking, we see over and over baptism always being a response of faith. Our infants and our youngest children, they, they, they can't really do that. Your, your three-year-old? Is it impossible for the Holy Spirit to regenerate their heart and make them alive? Absolutely not. But that's going to be a special case that we're going to be able to recognize a credible profession of faith from a three-year-old who's just able to begin to speak and put sentences together. Your six, your seven, your eight-year-old, maybe a little more. Parents, you're going to have to use a little wisdom here. But everyone who makes a credible profession of faith in Jesus Christ should be baptized. What's a credible profession of faith? Do you believe in Jesus? Can you express the gospel? Can you talk about what it, what it is to actually believe the gospel? Is it more than just this knowledge that you have floating around in your head? We, we, we can't look at a person's life and expect perfection from them. We can't assume that all of a sudden they're going to be perfect and then they're not going to be sinning anymore. Probably every baptized person in this room still struggles with sin. So if, if that's the measure, we're, we're, we're in trouble. Like, why did we get baptized? Parents, I would encourage you to use wisdom. Seek to, to, to walk carefully in this. But don't deny, don't, don't, don't delay baptism simply because you think that it's, it's going to be, in some way, you're going to be able to be sure that there comes a, a more sure or that, that they just aren't acting good enough. Be very careful with that because when did you act good enough to be baptized? Kids, let me, let me speak to you for a minute. If you believe that Jesus Christ is your Savior, I would encourage you to begin to talk to your parents today. Begin to talk to them now. You can't demand anything. They're your parents. You obey them. You honor them. You walk in in humility before them. But you talk to them today about Jesus being the Christ, your Savior. 
Let them hear you, that they can begin to, to, to use wisdom to determine when it is right for you to be baptized. Let me just say this, parents, parents. But, but t- next week, I'll say more about this next week, but just as long as I'm talking about this. Let, let me say this. We've not drawn a fence around our communion table. We've not, we've not gotten really strict about this. But I would suggest that if you feel like your kids believe enough to take communion, then there is no reason for them not to be baptized. Communion actually comes with a warning for the unrepentant. Baptism doesn't. So if you're holding on to something, holding back, delaying baptism, but allowing them to participate in communion, pay attention next week because there's actually a warning. If they believe enough to take of the, of, of the elements of communion, they believe enough to be baptized. You should be seeing them baptized or asking them to withhold from communion. So... If you're already a member of this church, you already have been a Christian for a while, let me, let me separate those out. If you're already a member of this church or you're not a member of this church and you've been a Christian for a while, but you have never been baptized, let me as pastorally as possible say, get baptized. Well, what are you waiting for? Rise up, get baptized. Well, there's no water here. Okay, next week we'll have it. You just let me know. We'll get you baptized. There's no reason for you not to get baptized. For the members of this church, it's part of our statement of faith. We all agree to this as we covenant together that we're going to walk in humility before this. It's part of our members' covenant. We are baptized believers. More than that, it's a command from Jesus. Be baptized. The intent's not to condemn you. But, but to allow you and us to celebrate together as we rejoice in the reality that Jesus has brought you from death to life. Now, there are some exceptions that we have, we have stated will make exceptions for people who, who were baptized as infants and can theologically explain their and, 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 and talk about their uh, infant baptism. We'll let you be members, but you can't be an elder, you can't be a deacon because you have to be able to willingly say, yes, I agree to all these things. So, you, so you'll be a member and you can participate as a member, but that's as far as you can go. We would encourage you, get baptized. Finally, if you've not been baptized, or not, not finally, let me say it like this. Maybe you, like me, were baptized as a child and then were saved as an adult. Don't cling on to that baptism. That's not, it's no different than any bath you were given as a kid. If you didn't have faith, you got washed with water, but it didn't represent the washing of the, of the internal regeneration that takes place, the eternal life that's produced. So get baptized. It's an act of obedience, a response of faith. It's something that, to, to rejoice in. And finally, I, I know this sermon has not been expressly evangelistic, but it has spoken a lot about what happens and how it occurs that we are saved if you're sitting here today and you're realizing, I have never been a Christian, I've never trusted in Christ, I've had this theory, but I've never trusted it, I've never really professed it. But I got baptized once and people just accept that. Let me just encourage you today. Trust in Jesus Christ. He is the only way. There is no salvation apart from Him. You cannot be good enough. Your baptism didn't save you. Your, your efforts, your good works don't save you. You're never going to be a good enough person. That's why God sent his son to live a perfect life, die a sacrificial death, and raise in victory. And then he gave us baptism 
so that not only would we speak the story, but we would demonstrate the story in our actions and when people hear of it and when people see it, they not only get to hear the gospel, they get to see the gospel in action. So if you have never believed in him, you've never trusted in him, let us know, we can celebrate with you that you would be baptized. Let's pray.